Welcome back to the Stars Made Me Do It. Welcome back and welcome back, Justin. Welcome, Justin. Hello, hello. I'm back once more. You all get to see what Justin looks like. If you're watching. Yes. Yeah. Head over to YouTube if you're not and you can see what Justin looks like. And like, comment, subscribe. Yes. (laughs) And click that bell notification, (laughs) as they all like to say. (laughs) And if you are watching, you'll notice that Tara and I are in person. (laughs) I'm in the Americas. It's very exciting. Super exciting. Stateside for the summer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So very exciting episode. We are back with cousin Justin, all on the same coast and... Well, Justin, would you like to tell the people what we're going to be talking about? We are going to be talking about D-Day, specifically the Normandy landings. Yeah, because it is D-Day, the day this is coming out. Yes. <laughs> Which is very good timing on Sunday this year. I feel like it worked out very well for our events this well, year. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Valentine's know, Day. <laughs> we know, yeah, we noticed that Sunday was, it, was D-Day or D-Day fell on a Sunday and we were like, let's just do a d-day themed episode yeah and bring on with our history history expert, buff justin yeah. yeah and i'm gonna talk about people who aren't just american for a change so that's exciting too yay so the people the main people that we are going to be talking about today what who are the main people we're talking about today yeah uh charles de gaulle fdr winston churchill and eisenhower a little bit and uh probably just mention Patton and passing just because he's kind of a He's a pawn in all of this, but he's a big pawn. Okay. Yeah, we were just talking before this how we were like, we feel kind of like dopes because we're like, I know I learned a lot of this in history, but it's like we learned so much in history and then not remembering a lot of it. So I'm like excited to yeah. relearn. And high school was more than 10 years ago at this point, which is insane. Yeah. So it's been a while since I learned all this stuff. And honestly, I don't remember and also much of like. It really cool but weird like connection is that you know i i like spend a decent amount of time in normandy because like most people who live in paris like have like some country place they escape to and many people have houses in normandy so yeah guillaume's family like they all share a place there and i've been there many times and it's like oh let's just casually take a walk to omaha beach (laughs) it's like I mean, it's like a 20 minute walk and then we're on the beach where all this took place. So it's really wild. And the American cemetery is like heavy. Mm. Yeah. Where shall we start? Yeah, well, lots went down. So we'll start with the operation itself. Operation Overlord was the plan to invade Western Europe, specifically Normandy and liberate France. Although liberating all of France was not the priority. It was really just to establish a beachhead, establish a foothold, and then just strike at the heart of the Reich while Stalin was opening another front and actually fighting back for the first time on his front. So June 6, 1944 was the day they went for because they went for the fifth and the weather didn't cooperate like it does. And the whole plan ahead of this was they dropped the 101st Airborne behind enemy lines to kind of weaken the British dropped there airborne units behind and the navy bombarded for hours beforehand and the reason that this wasn't met with it was met with substantial resistance but the reason it wasn't met with all of the resistance is because hitler was convinced that this wasn't the real invasion because a churchill had done his job and 
done a lot of counterintelligence to lie and say they were going to attack the Pas de Calais, which is the closest point between England and France. And the other thing is that Patton was currently there, uh, according to Hitler, it was because that's where he was going to attack from, because Patton was, in his mind, the best general on either side, the British, the Americans, the French. And Patton, meanwhile, was actually there on desk leave because he had slapped a soldier who was suffering from PTSD and the army didn't take too kindly to that. (laughs) So, but they knew that Hitler respected the hell out of Patton because he said it repeatedly. So they decided to make a whole bunch of fake looking armaments, including blow up tanks and trucks and stuck a whole bunch of new recruits there to pretend they were an army. And Hitler fell for it hook, line and sinker. So he put Rommel in charge of the defense and told him they're going to attack, but this isn't the big attack. Wait for the big attack. And the big attack never came. So the naval bombardment, by and large, didn't do enough. The aerial bombardment missed a lot of its targets. The airdrops of the paratroopers scattered them because the Germans knew an invasion was coming and new paratroopers were likely to precede it. So you had... Brits ending up in French and in, in, with the French resistance, you had Americans ending up in British units. People couldn't find where they were. Another problem was that the Americans were poorly equipped for this. The paratroopers had to unstrap each of their arms, their legs, and their chest to get out of their harnesses. So you have horror stories of them landing in lakes and drowning in their parachutes or getting caught in trees and then getting gunned down by the SS or whoever caught them. Meanwhile, the British paratroopers had a giant button on their chest, and when you pushed it, it opened. So, you know, they weren't necessarily sharing technology very well. (laughs) And so the morning of the 6th, they decide they're going ahead with it because even though the weather is still not great because of the weather, they can't afford to push it off because if they do, it's going to be more than a week, and they've got everything in place, so let's just go for it. So there's five beachheads they want to establish. They decide to split it. The British are going to take three. The Americans are going to take two. Those two being Omaha and Utah. The British take gold and sword, and they send the expeditionary force, namely the Canadians, at Juneau. And this goes kind of poorly at first. Uh, Utah actually goes relatively well. Teddy Roosevelt's son actually leads the one of the units onto the beach and is the first senior officer ashore, even though they missed their shot. And this is kind of a trend among the beachheads. They don't all land where they're supposed to because the sea is rough. The Germans put defenses in place to stop the ships from coming ashore. So the ships are dropping people in water that at some points is up to their neck. Um, So you have them getting gunned down as they're on the boats. You have them getting gunned down as they're getting out of the boats. You have them drowning because their life preservers are catching them upside down. You have them drowning because they took off their life preservers because they're flipping them over only to drown because they're carrying too much gear. And on top of all of this, you have the Germans launching artillery at the boats. You have the Germans with machine guns. And it all makes for a bloodbath. If you want a better verbal, descri- a better visual description, you can watch the opening of Saving Private Ryan, and that is just horrifying. But that's probably the best representation that you're going to get. And, but it works. Eventually, at the end of the day, most of the objectives they set are not met because the plan is they're going to attack the five beachheads. They're going to establish one massive beachhead between all five beaches, and they're going to use that as their launching ground. Only two of the beaches are successfully 
matched. And most of the other beaches don't have tanks aboard, don't have artillery ashore. So while they manage to secure the beaches by the end of the day, they take heavy casualties, they inflict heavy casualties, and they're just kind of getting set. It takes about a week for them to finally establish the beachhead for the 101st and the British paratroopers to take out artillery that is trying to hit the ships that are landing and then finally start moving into France. And they don't take the coast towns that they're aiming for until pretty much the end of the month. So it's not the lightning fast attack they were aiming for. The plan was by the end of the day, they were going to have three key towns taken and all five beaches linked. And none of that is the case. That's a lot. Yes. I mean, there's no light way to talk. <laughs> it's heavy material, it's heavy for, material. Our, for this it's, podcast. I know. It's very heavy material. And it's like, it's also, I don't know. I feel like there's so many people as, you know, we have like the, the murder episodes of the podcast. We have like the, what, but I feel like our generation or not even our generation. I feel like people in general with World War II, it's just, it's something about it that everybody is drawn to learn about. Like, I, I don't know when I, whenever I, I just know so many really amazing, like World War II, like historical fiction novels, or, you know, like there so many people are drawn to knowing more because it's like one of those, like, it's almost like the murder thing where it's like, it's such an unbelievable thing that it's like, I want more information because how could this be a thing? You know, it's uh, it's heavy AF. And if any of this interests you, I'm sure you've got a dad or an uncle or a grandparent who already knows more than I'm going to tell you. So you can talk <laughs> to them. So who's like, with all of that going on, who's the first person that we can dive into about all this? Uh, well, so to rewind a little bit, this all starts when Germany invades Poland and then that gets the British involved. The French are then invaded and basically conquered by the Germans relatively shortly after. So the British are on their own to the point that they're pushed out of Europe and they're fighting Hitler at home, trying to prevent any sort of crossing into England, which they don't necessarily succeed at because a lot of the Channel Islands end up getting taken by the Nazis. So they're doing a lot of fighting in Africa, Northern Africa specifically. And that's where you see the SAS come into play and that the British counterintelligence. And that's where you see Rommel really established that the German tank command is the best in the world to this point. And that's where when Patton lands, he's going to make a name for himself. But then, so I guess we'll start with uh, Churchill because it really starts with him. He's the one in England telling everyone from the time Hitler is elected that this is not going to end well. And he's getting poo-pooed because Hitler is going to all these meetings and he's making all these promises and the prime minister at the time, Neville Chamberlain, is saying, you know, he, we're, we're just going to give him what he wants and then he'll stop. And as we know, that isn't what happened because they give him Czechoslovakia and they give him parts of France and they give him Austria. And then they say, all right, now if you invade Poland, it's wartime. And Hitler says, then stop me. And he invades Poland. And Churchill is kind of at this point like, well, told you. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So Churchill starts out, he goes to the Royal Military Academy because he comes from a very wealthy and historic family. He's granted the rank of second lieutenant. And from an early age, he cuts his teeth in politics, opposing the women's right to vote. And England actually passes the women's right to vote nine years after the U.S. does. So go us. 
Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we're actually Please. ahead of things for once. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, I was kind of surprised to learn that. Yeah. So before the war, he is a member of parliament. He gets elected president of the Board of Trade. He's home secretary of prison and policing. So he actually commutes a lot of death sentences. He laxes their very like draconian prison system a little bit. And he eventually makes it to first Lord of the Admiralty, which is as prestigious as it sounds. And this is right before World War I, which is going to be a key part because all of these people who are important in World War II get their first taste of action in World War I because World War I doesn't solve anything. And Churchill's big plan in World War I, the one that he is like staking his, his fame on, is Gallipoli. He's going to strike right at the heart of the Ottoman Empire. And by doing so, he's going to open up the Suez Canal, he's going to take the Ottomans out of play, and it's all going to be great, except it isn't, because 200,000 people die on the British side in the invasion. Most of them Australianders, I don't know how to say it. Yeah. Uh, Australian? The expeditionary Australians? forces. Australians, Canadians, and New Zealanders. Okay. Uh, so the Anzac countries, and this is basically the reason they celebrate Anzac is because of this horrendous campaign and how many people die and Churchill is asked by members of his party and the opposing party to resign and he does and he does what anyone during World War One who just lost everything would do and he decides he's going to join the army so he rejoins the army as a lieutenant colonel and he actually sees combat in World War One and then after the war he goes down to South Africa as a, a journalist to kind of describe what's going on in the Boer War and gets captured and has to escape by himself through the African bush. And that's how he gets famous. He writes all about it and people eat it up because he's this heroic Englishman surviving the wilds of Africa. And then you start to see 1933, he wants the king, he wants Chamberlain, Hitler's going to be a problem. And 1939, he's proven correct. And after the fall of France, he lets what French leaders he can get out come to England. And one of those people is Charles de Gaulle, who I'll get to in a moment. And he really reaches iconic status with the way he leads through World War II with the bombing of Britain. Uh, the British people are being demoralized every night. The Nazis have complete aerial dominance and are dropping bombs on London. They're dropping bombs. They hit Buckingham Palace and he convinces the king and the queen not to leave. He convinces them to tour the ruins. He tours the ruins themselves every day. And he's really the figure that the British latch onto as their hero he's going to lead them through it to the other side we then i'll jump into de gaulle for a little bit so de gaulle is raised catholic and he really likes philosophy from an early age so those are really his two like childhood traits he's a french catholic and he really likes to learn and to you know argue with people <laughs> uh he's not a great soldier but he's really smart so he's kind of the opposite of Patton where Patton is really good at the military stuff but he's not all that book smart and so he rises through the ranks de Gaulle ends up making friends with a guy uh, Patton who ends up becoming really important later on he's a big French general at this point he becomes even more famous during World War I and then potentially even more famous during World War II because when the Nazis show up and say, hey, guess what? We're in charge. Patan is the one who says, okay, we'll do what you want and gives up into the Nazis and has actually installed as a puppet leader of Vichy France while de Gaulle is saying basically, 
you sold us out, even though from Patan's point of view, what he did was to the benefit of the surviving French people. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because I I was reading this one book called Saving Mona Lisa and it was the whole like, like it was his like a history book, but written as like, I don't know, in a fiction type way, the story of how the, what happened to the Mona Lisa during World War II and how it like went around everywhere and traveled through like the castles and like whatever. And it was really, really interesting where all the artwork like went from the Louvre because the Nazis were, you know, trying, they, they took so much of it. But um, uh, there's this picture in it, like, oh, I just got chills thinking about it. There's this picture in it of the Louvre and like uh, Rue de Rivoli, like the, the street that's right next to the Louvre, all with Nazi flags just along it. And I'm like, I walk by this street now, like, the, and it's just like, I cannot imagine that it's, I don't know, there's, it's like, we have a disconnect, but it really wasn't that long ago. And, and it's like, this is such a, there's a big disconnect for Americans too, because it didn't, there, the nothing Nazis happened. didn't take over here. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, or we can't imagine it. And like, you walk yeah. down that street every, not every day, but all the time. And yeah. And, and then like to see that there. picture in a book of just like, well, like I yeah. literally like was just on this street and not that long ago, it used to just have Nazi flags along it. And mm-hmm. And yeah, and it is a weird concept to to think about like the occupied versus free like France mm-hmm. and yeah. Also just to jump in about you have been talking about Churchill and de Gaulle and I just had like a holy crap moment because I'm looking at their charts right now. I got my computer here and they both have a grand fire trine in their charts. <laughs> so obviously they're gonna be besties. Holy <laughs> crap. So like, for anybody listening, a grand trine means you have a triangle in your chart. Like I, I don't know. Can I like? We can. We can. I can put it up on on the. Even video. from here, you can see so, triangle. 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 Yeah. <laughs> you demonstrator. And um, but they this both have it. They both have it, and so it means that like you have prominent placements in each of the signs of an element. Mm-hmm. So like Charles de Gaulle has. Chiron in Leo, and it's at the very top of his chart. He has um, Mercury, South Node, and uh, Venus in Sagittarius. And then he has his moon in Aries. And wait, no, no, no. Okay, okay. (laughs) Yes. So he has, (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) So he has a grand fire trine. And then Winston Churchill has a grand fire trine as well. He has moon in Leo. He has, uh, well, it's trining his his Venus, but he's Venus and sun in Sagittarius. And then he's got his Chiron in Aries as well as like his North Node and his Neptune. So it's just like these two crazy, like fire boys, fire boys. They have like a fire trine. It's just wild to me. And also like heavy Sagittarius placements and what you were talking about, Winston Churchill, like in all of his like, you know, kind of, I don't know, like thriving through difficult adventure times. That's really wild. And they both have fire moons. It's really, um, they're they're fire boys for sure. So yeah, de Gaulle has a temper and I'll go into his relationship with Churchill because it has, is as rosy as you would imagine. So de Gaulle kind of rises to fame during World War One. He's an early proponent of armored units, much to the chagrin of the rest of the 
French army. The French army is still very big on sending bayonet charges at machine gun nests and using horses and things that get lots of people killed. Hashtag welcome to France. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Classic. Weapons. Yep. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in one of his first battles, he takes a bullet to the knee. Uh, he actually becomes known for his bravery because he's really good at laying flat on his stomach and crawling out into no man's land and then kind of signaling back like this is how they're laid out this is how many people i can see this is their armaments this is how they're going to defend and he does this multiple times without getting injured this is de gaulle this is de gaulle so just because we we didn't like announce it at the beginning de gaulle he's actually has the same birthday as yours truly he's a november 22nd baby but and my dad has Winston Churchill's birthday. So you and my dad what? have this relationship. <laughs> Good to know. Um, that's so true. Yes. But Charles de Gaulle is a Scorpio. He's the last moments of Scorpio. Mm. So yeah, he's like right on the cusp there. But there, there's another proof that cusps aren't real. But I was just thinking a Scorpio would be able to sneakily like mm. on their belly, like, you know, like very stealthy and literally like scorpion like to be able to do that. Um, so um, Charles de Gaulle is a, a Scorpio sun, uh, Aries moon, Libra rising. So I appear diplomatic, however, yeah. <laughs> however, and he is, he does very well in politics. He does not do as well in diplomacy. He's yeah. very good at getting things done by being sneaky and you know, calling in favors and having the right friends, but he's very bad at, you know, making friends with people he doesn't agree with, who is kind of everybody. It's so interesting, too, because both Charles de Gaulle and Winston Churchill are Libra rising cancer midheaven. So it's like cancer midheaven being like, just like, you know, the trickling down on your chart is like, I protect my kin, you know, like, uh, you know, and also leading with uh leading with harmony and, yeah and let's just all get along and, yeah but but, but then they, fire moves they have such strong placements and really strong set in but, their way signs but also kinda. like the whole the whole purpose of like a rising sign is how like you know people see you but it's mm-hmm. also how you see the world so it's like the the way that they see the world is like i need to have a di- like a diplomatic like balance and i want harmony However, like the way I go about that depends on the rest of my chart, but both of them to have that same goal and to have that like cancer midheaven of like, I take care of my kin and like, I'm the one who protects people. Like I am the mama bear or the papa bear, whatever, you know? So they both have the same rising and midheaven and, and fire moons. It's just so interesting. But at the same time, it's a Sagittarius versus a, a Scorpio. And as much as, you know, a Sagittarius pride here, I understand that a Scorpio is gonna like, be a Scorpio and you know Sag gonna Sag Sag gonna Sag Scorp gonna Scorp (laughs) so (laughs) so de Gaulle during World War One the Battle of Verdun is one of the biggest bloodiest battles in World War One and his battalion is pretty much wiped out he's injured in the thigh by a bayonet and ends up getting captured And much to his chagrin, he spends the rest of the war as a POW, despite trying to escape numerous times. And after the war, he and Patan are buddy-buddy because Patan is his mentor, and he ghostwrites a bunch of books for Patan. And then when they start disagreeing, he says, well, I wrote all your books publicly, and, you know, Patan is not okay with that. So then when the Nazis invade 
De Gaulle's in charge of the defense and he doesn't do a great job. Uh, other soldiers say that he doesn't have the hunter's eye. He doesn't have the eye for battle. So he doesn't have the ability to react well when things are going south, which for the French and the defense is all the time. And Am I wrong of- though in thinking that I feel like like De Gaulle was really like seen as a as someone who came in and like lifted spirits of people. That's what I feel like I've heard. Am I, is that correct? He lifted the French people's spirits. He didn't necessarily lift his own soldier's spirits. So the way he led is he would find the highest point of the battlefield, have all his subordinates stand about six feet away from him. And then he'd shout insults at them as their units underperformed. And that was his leadership style. (laughs) Now to the French people, he was very inspiring. Because okay. after he flees to England, the first thing he does is he convinces Churchill to put him in front of a microphone, which Churchill doesn't want to do because Churchill doesn't want him making promises or saying things or giving information away. And de Gaulle proceeds to appeal to the French people to hold on, help is coming, just you know, stay strong, take care of each other, and we'll be back. The problem is he's thinking he's broadcasting to France. And other than some parts of Northern France that are close enough to England to pick up the radio signal, he's really broadcasting to the French soldiers who had to evacuate to England, Mm -hmm. the soldiers who were able to, but it does really put him in charge. He's the leader of the free French. He's the leader of the army still. And he's the one who's going to kind of call the shots with the resistance as well as he can. The problem is to do that. He has to go through Churchill because Churchill's running the spy rings that are getting information to and from the French resistance. And I have a little quote here from de Gaulle. Uh, He and Churchill fought all the time. And when asked about this, de Gaulle said, when I am right, I get angry. Churchill gets angry when he is wrong. We are angry at each other much of the time. (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love it. So to show how well they trust each other, uh, the Yalta conference, which is when FDR, Churchill, and Stalin meet and determine the Americans are coming into the war and how we're going to handle this is we're taking Germany out first. And the way they're going to do this is the British and the Americans are going to attack from the West, Stalin's going to attack from the East, and it's all going to be hunky-dory. They don't invite de Gaulle to this and he never forgives them for it. Then coming up on the invasion, de Gaulle keeps asking and saying, when are we liberating France? When are we invading France? Because when the Americans enter the war, they attack Africa first. And then once they secure North Africa, they attack Sicily and Italy. And once they secure Sicily and Italy, they're still not looking at France as far as de Gaulle is concerned. And so now it's been like two years. France is still under Nazi rule. French Jews are being sent to concentration camps under Bataan because he's giving them whatever they want in order to protect whoever he can. And is what he's saying anyway. And de Gaulle's getting fed up. So two days before the invasion is supposed to go off, Churchill pulls him aside and says, hey, listen, this is actually what's going to happen. And the reason I haven't told you is because I don't trust you. And I also think that you were going to let something slip in one of these radio broadcasts that I really don't want you to have. <laughs> because after he gives his appeal of the 18th, he promises that he's going to keep broadcasting to the French people against Churchill's wishes. So Churchill is, he and Churchill go about things very differently and de Gaulle constantly feels like he's being pushed to the side because he is. Mm -hmm. And a big reason for this is FDR. And FDR 
American president. He is actually a descendant of Teddy Roosevelt, who we spoke about in the last episode I was on. Yeah. And he is part of a New York political dynasty, thanks to Teddy Roosevelt. So he ends up very young. He marries his fifth cousin. So when people say he and his wife are cousins, that doesn't really tell the whole truth. Yeah. Uh, his fifth cousin, Eleanor, against his mother's wishes because his mother thinks he's too young and he's making a stupid decision. And then he proceeds to cheat on her every chance he gets, including oh. with her personal secretary. And then when Eleanor finds out, he promises he won't do it again. And then he does it again. Oh. But because he kept that nice and secret, none of this came out until the 60s. He becomes a New York State Senator. He then becomes an Assistant Secretary of the Navy. And then his paralysis starts to set in from polio. But he doesn't let that deter him. He runs for governor of New York and he wins. And then in 1933, he's elected president. And he meets with Herbert Hoover, the outgoing president, who says, all these policies I've been using to get us out of the Great Depression are really working. You should follow them. And FDR says, the hell they are. Get out of my office. (laughs) So he becomes president. And one of the first things he thinks he can save money on is all this military buildup we have to, had after World War I. And he starts slashing the army, which puts him at odds with MacArthur, who is saying, there's going to be another war. Europe is not happy. Asia is not happy. And we're going to be underprepared for it. And when the Americans die, it's going to be your fault. And it turns out MacArthur was right for once in his life. Ah. So FDR gets elected four times, two of them before World War II. And the person he wants as vice president going into World War II is a man named Henry Wallace, who by today's standards would be described as a socialist, and by then standards was described as a communist. And so (laughs) the Democrats saying, if you put this guy in the ticket, you're going to lose. You need to take a Southerner. Here's Harry Truman. He's really inoffensive because he's so boring. And Mm -hmm. FDR says, but I don't want him, but all right. And so he doesn't tell Truman anything. So Truman is kept out of the loop right up until the moment FDR dies and they all start talking at him about all the things he doesn't know about, like the Manhattan Project and all of his agreements with Stalin and Churchill and everything about, you know, the war that his country's fighting. Wow. I didn't know he was kept out like in the dark for all of that stuff. He really didn't trust Truman. And despite the fact that FDR pretty much knew he was dying towards the end, he really didn't want to read him in. Yeah. FDR is a Aquarius sun, Cancer moon, Virgo rising. So I'm just thinking like he was probably organized AF, at least by appearances. And then um, I remember when we were talking to our one Aries guest who was a, a Virgo rising and they were like, it is funny. Everybody thinks I'm organized, but my life's really a mess. Um, but like those appearances of, you know, being organized and then an Aquarius. Yeah. I mean, just thinking like, I'm not letting you in on the plan and and you're not going to make me feel bad about it. Like there's, you know, I don't, I feel no, I do not feel bad about this, but then that cancer moon, it must be, I always say this is a conflicting placement in my opinion to have heavy Aquarius and cancer placements mm-hmm. going on at the Especially same time. Especially sun and moon. Sun and moon, which are like, you know, the everything outside versus everything inside. Can we also show his chart too? Because I mean, I'm new to looking at the the charts, but like, this is such a weird chart where like so much Taurus placement and it's like all grabbed in that corner. Yep. Really weird where I feel like most of the time people have a crazy web and yeah. this is all like, Ur. yep. It's a funnel. It's yeah. a funnel. Um, but there's nothing even like 
on the cross you know it's just it's all over here yeah yeah it's just like the, the aspects are all going that mm. way he's got a lot of tourist placements going on i mean that's it's also a generational thing um with this particular situation but yeah. he's got a lot of tourist placements going on in the eighth house so like a lot of i would think he was like super stable but secretive as fuck about it like and also his Chirons yes. and Taurus. So feeling like at any moment, everything that he like cares about is going to be taken away from him. Mm. Really. Well, cause he had a terminal disease and he was dying essentially from yeah. his like twenties. Dang. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then his moon being in his 10th house. So like that just being a really like important, like 10th house is, is Capricorn's house. Like you're, you're, you're standing when it comes to like a kind of society, but especially work things. So like emotionally, I would think that would be a really big deal to him to have such a, uh, a well-known presence in the workplace, you know? And I mean, he is secretive. He manages to keep the fact that he's in a wheelchair hidden from the American public the entire time he's governor of New York up until almost his third term. And at that point, the only reason the Democrats stick with him past the Washington limit of two terms is because it's the middle of a war and they don't want to change who's in charge and he's giving them the best chance to win. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's he holds the country together after Pearl Harbor and then he takes all his New Deal stuff, which is about rebuilding the American manufacturing, rebuilding agriculture and saying, okay, but now we have a goal as a country and that goal is we're going to get Japan back for what they did to us, but first Germany. Mm. And he enacts that by throwing all of the Japanese in internment camps, which is very popular even to this day. And he does, to a significantly lesser extent, round up Germans and Italians that he thinks are guilty of something or might have a reason to give information back. But he is also pressing from the moment he finds, from Kristallnacht, essentially, he's trying to convince a very anti-Semitic cabinet and a very anti-semitic congress to take jewish people in from germany and they don't want to and then after they get bombed in pearl harbor he basically puts a kibosh on sending anyone of german descent back to germany with the idea if we send germans back they might join the army they might have feelings and if we send jews back they're gonna die so we're keeping everyone here and he does this and the only reason he's able to get a pass is because there's a war on and everyone is like, okay, fine, you're in charge. Call the shots. Yeah. And I, for, didn't, I didn't know about that. Like, I mean, I knew like little parts of all of that, but like just the way you said it makes a lot of sense. I don't know. Like it's yeah. never been presented to me in that way. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and historians generally actually rank him as the third best president, the top two being Washington and Lincoln, because of course... Actually, above the other Roosevelt, who, you know, is also ranked in the top five, but just not as good. But it's because he holds the country together for, you know, seven years of starvation up until the war. And then he's able to, as soon as Britain goes to war, the American economy starts booming because now they're selling all these weapons to the British. They're not selling, they're lend leasing them because if he sold them, that would be an act of war and the Germans could attack it. Oh, so you can bomb them, but make sure you give them back to us. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These planes are to borrow. I expect them in the same condition I gave them to you in. I want these guns back, never fired. You're just holding on to them for a while across the ocean where a war is going on. 
we're going to send some soldiers. They are not there to fight. They are there to show you how to fight by fighting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Things have really gotten better in present day too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, they sent like pilots over to teach the British fighters how to fight because the British haven't been doing this this whole time. But it's also to show them how to use like American planes and yeah. things that are being lent leased to them. Yeah. And if you watch Pearl Harbor, it actually goes into that a little bit. The movie by Michael Bay, which is yeah, historical accuracy. <laughs> it's a really so. intense love triangle, Justin. <laughs> yes, that is why I watch a movie about Pearl Harbor. <laughs> That is how they get me to watch a movie. <laughs> exactly. Hey, Tara. Did you know that your name kind of sounds like the word tarot? Uh. <laughs> and speaking of tarot, there's a really cool shop called Tarot in Time that is so much more than just a shop. You are right. Tarot in Time is a tarot and astrology service with a brick and mortar store located in Kent, Connecticut for all your metaphysical, herbal and tarot needs. Their herbal and holistic approach to tarot and astrology is extremely welcoming. Their website includes videos of each reader so you can find the right match for you. And they offer in-person or distanced via Zoom tarot and astrology readings. Prices are very reasonable, starting at $20 for a 15-minute reading. I've had multiple readings from Tarot and Time, both in person and online. When I was in the U.S., I've been in their actual shop. And when I've been here in France, I've been able to coordinate it fine doing the readings online. Yeah, I had one in person, uh, one in person reading, and it actually changed my mind about tarot readings. I wasn't a huge fan of them before, but after my reading with Mimi, I kind of changed my mind about it and I like them now. Yeah, so you can do easy booking online at tarotintime.com. That's T A R O T I N T H Y M E.com. FDR and Churchill have one of the great wartime working relationships potentially in history as two people with very different goals because Churchill's goal from the get is to get FDR involved as soon as possible. And FDR's goal from the beginning is to not get as involved as possible because it is insanely unpopular to say, hey, we're going to go fight a war halfway across the world while you are in line to get bread because you're out of work and you have no money. Yeah. So I love that it's a it's an Aquarius Sagittarius relationship, but like comparing the two of them, FDR and Churchill, we have an Aquarius, uh, we have FDR as an Aquarius, Churchill as a Sagittarius. Then we have um, FDR Cancer Moon, Churchill Leo Moon, FDR Virgo Rising, Churchill Libra Rising. So, but they, I'm wondering, I want to know, I want to look at their Mercuries. I think they've, so Churchill is, where's his Mercury? Oh, Churchill is a um, Scorpio for Mercury. And then FDR is, uh, where'd you go? Aquarius. Aquarius. Interesting. Well, it worked. Mm. It worked. And they actually came to rely on each other pretty heavily. And Churchill actually realized early on how sick FDR actually was through all of this. And there's a great story about one of the first times they meet, they're both bathing and Churchill just comes strutting in in the nude while FDR is sitting in the tub unknown to Churchill unable to get up 
just kind of eye level with his crotch while they're having this conversation. Oh god. Oh, because that's the type that of guy. Yeah. That's the type of guy Churchill was. He was brash. One of the great Churchill quotes that just kind of shows you the type of person he was. He insulted a woman at some high society party and she said, Sir, if you were my husband, I'd poison your drink. And he said, Madam, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Freaking love that. Yeah. Oh my God. Love it. Yeah, I'm uh I'm I'm very interested in their like in their working relationship just as far as like, I don't know, like communication is key here. And I do feel like, you know, Scorpio Mercury versus Aquarius Mercury would not be like it, it's in general Aquarius fixed. and Scorpio yeah they're both fixed and if they're fixed on different things there's no communication happening however I can totally see like both of them being so cutthroat if they're cut in the same way that that's an excellent like you know it, if it works it's going to work super intensely it it's going to get done exactly <laughs> whereas i feel like if it was you know opposing ideas that would be a terrible like partner of opposing idea you know but um if they're on the same page with things you know neither a scorpio nor an aquarius are going to budge on like you know get it it's a fixed sign it's going to like have the follow through as far as like yeah action goes and then you know a Sagittarius and an Aquarius working together I think that that's definitely we got air and fire going on one's fueling one's like you know keeping it going yeah and they they do work together because they need to because Churchill's kind of trapped on an island right now literally and you know, he needs weapons, he needs men, he needs a foothold he can work from, but he's got all the intelligence and he's got all the generals with actual combat experience against the Nazis. And FDR has all the money and the guns and the people to shoot them. And so this is the moment where they kind of, it's like, we're both, we both need things from each other, but FDR can win without Churchill. Churchill can't win without FDR, but Churchill's the type of guy who's used to running an empire. He's used to everyone coming to him for help. And he's going to, you know, make it as British Anglo-centric as possible, I guess we'll call it. Yeah. So the concession he makes for the Normandy invasion is they both agree that despite the fact that there are going to be five beachheads and you're going to have naval forces working with Marines, working with infantry, working with the Air Force, we need one person calling all those shots. And Churchill wants it to be his guy and FDR wants it to be his guy and FDR wins. And his guy that he taps is Dwight D. Eisenhower, who you might remember from being president of the United States. <laughs> yep. I um I just did a quick composite though of um FDR and Churchill, like their composite chart, like what they are as a unit. They have a grandfather trine as a unit. <laughs> oh my god. As a unit, they are a Capricorn. Like when I if you like find the middle point of all of their planets together. They're a Capricorn Sun Leo Moon with Capricorn Mercury and then um, Virgo rising. So as a unit, I feel like that is a good unit and they have a grand fire trine. I, I cannot, be I mean, I, be I believe in the accuracy of astrology, but when I find these type of like, you know, patterns, I'm like, how can, <laughs> they should change the name to the World War Grand Fire Trine. World War Trine. <laughs> um, exactly. Oh my gosh. Yep. Yeah. So anyways, uh, and as far as, um, as far as Eisenhower goes, 
just for the record, he he's got trines. Got too. a grand air trine. Interesting. So like ideas, 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 all the ideas, and also like, I mean, whew, that's that's all that's all. In it's an intense in a like you must be smart as fuck, but also. Um, yeah, so he's a Libra sun, Libra moon, hey Tara, Virgo rising. And he's got his Gemini, or sorry, his mid heavens in Gemini. He's got North Node in Gemini, Pluto and Neptune in Gemini. And then he's got his Jupiter in Aquarius. And then he's um, his Libra, Libra Mercury. So crazy. I mean, this thing, like, I'm just going to show it again for the people who are watching. Like, look at this crazy triangle. Yeah, and I mean, trines aren't just like all over i mean yet yeah, they are like in a lot of charts but it's it's interesting that's it's a big deal to have a trine and yeah. they're all and they all have them yeah there's so that's such <laughs> it's such an interesting like it's just such an intensity and it's such like for example if you were to have a grand water trine you you would be like the most intuitive person and like have such like like creative and emotional abilities so to have a grand air trine would be just so so intellectual because you have major pieces of your chart in each of the air signs and each of these fire signs so i don't know like what do you think justin as far as like eisenhower having the grand air trine do you see that from his personality as far as like being more of like an ideas very much in his head person he from a young age so he grows up jehovah's witness and despite his mother being a Jehovah's Witness and wanting that for him, he loves military history from a very young age. And against her wishes, he gets into West Point and he's an exemplary student. He's an exemplary soldier. And the reason he gets tapped is not because he's some sort of like balls to the wall badass. He gets tapped because he is the most organized person. He is great at administration. He is very good at meeting people getting to know them and judging exactly what type of leader they are and how they can best be used. So he is the type of, he is the person you want running something of this scale. And so Churchill meets him and says, okay, this is the guy. FDR knows this is the guy. De Gaulle doesn't get a say, but De Gaulle actually likes him. And so it, it just like it, it's the perfect storm for him. And then Going later into the war, he's the guy who, when MacArthur is being crazy in the Pacific, Eisenhower's one is just kind of like, hush, like <laughs> the adults are talking. Like he puts his finger up to his lips when <laughs> <so> he's talking. <laughs> yeah, FDR and MacArthur don't get along. Eisenhower and MacArthur don't get along, but Eisenhower knows how to work with him. And that's kind of Eisenhower's skill, the entire, his entire, his presidency. And as a general, he is, he knows how to make everyone kind of coexist. And like I said, de Gaulle takes to him and Eisenhower doesn't necessarily agree with de Gaulle a hundred percent of the time, but he understands where de Gaulle is coming from. He understands, you know, you're fighting for people that are actively oppressed. You obviously want to do everything you can to get back to them. And so after Normandy, FDR and Churchill have no interest in going to Paris because it has no strategic value, but to de Gaulle, it is a huge, it is a symbolic value. Yeah. Because if Paris is still Nazi, it doesn't matter that you liberated the whole North of France if Paris is the heart of France. Yeah. And so he's the one that finally convinces them once Paris is weakened enough to swing some tanks down and liberate the city. And the liberation of the city actually is not, it, it doesn't go well. 
uh, unlike when the Nazis invaded, the city is relatively intact. When the Americans and the British invade, the Germans put up a fight. And the city's a little worse for the wear afterwards. But de Gaulle gets what he wants, which is his giant triumphant return down, I don't know, the street. The one with the Arc de Triomphe. He's walking down. French flags everywhere. Returning hero at the head of a column of French and uh, American and English text. Yeah. I'm also just thinking you said like it's the heart of like Paris is the heart and it's like there's Charles de Gaulle with that cancer midheaven like like it's not enough like the people need to feel like you know it's it's not it doesn't feel like we can't like nobody left behind type of thing but also like this is what's gonna reach people like if Paris is free I totally yeah I feel that well, because oh, the then it's is what you're thinking is yes. what you're talking about. Oh, I guess yes. Yes, good song, good song. Um, <laughs> but that's so interesting. So, what else can I tell you? What happens next? <laughs> what happens next? So after Normandy, so Normandy is in '44. It's I believe it's about six months before they finally make it to Berlin. Normandy is really the beginning of the end for the Nazis because Rommel fails, even though Rommel is without a doubt the best general the Reich has. He falls out of favor with Hitler. He then actually helps with a coup to have, not helps, but he doesn't rat out the people who try to assassinate Hitler. And Hitler finds out about this and basically gives him the option of, I can ruin you and your whole family or you can kill yourself and so he kills himself he gets the whole military funeral the hero of the right da, 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 da. how does he kill himself i believe it was poison but he does it and it's just kind of brushed under the rug whereas if he had defied hitler then his immediate family would have been killed his extended family would have been killed it would have been like a purge yeah and Rommel's counterpart really in all of this is Patton and Patton is the one other than Eisenhower on the American side who from World War One and before World War One is saying armored vehicles are the, what's going to win future wars because as a soldier in the US he is tasked with chasing down Pancho Villa who is a bandit who comes across the border from Mexico he attacks some settlements he does whatever he wants to do and he flees back into Mexico and they can never catch him and he says well horses are great but what if I could move faster than a horse? And so he commissions Dodge to make him vehicles that will do that. And he does. And this is the moment where before World War I, he's saying tanks are big. And then during World War I, when the very first very bad tanks are on the field of battle, he's saying this is the way the world is going to go. And during World War II, with the shitty, shitty American tanks that can't stand up to the panzers, he's still saying, I told you this is what we should have been preparing for. Mm. And... It's interesting yeah. how like there's so much like I don't know there's just military history that comes so much of what we use on a daily thing comes from military history. Mm. Yes. Yeah. A lot of things we use a lot of the food we eat comes from military history. The reason Cheetos have cheese powder on them is because the guy who invented them was able to get the cheese really cheap from leftover stores from World War II. Oh. What's up, Cheetos? <laughs> yeah. Fritos oh. becomes a household name in the U.S. because he convinces the army that they're really, they're high in calories and they're lighter and easier to store than meat. 
which they are. And so the military contracts Fritos to provide these as snacks to the soldiers. And what you see with the soldiers coming back with that, with Hershey, with all the stuff that they get, they form an attachment to it. And so when they come back, they're brand loyal without even knowing it. Yeah. It's really interesting. Wow. Yeah. So after all of this, do these guys like keep up any sort I mean, do they stay pen pals? You know, do they keep <laughs> up any sort of relationship? Well, FDR dies uh, yeah. before the war's out. Truman takes over. Truman and De Gaulle do not get along. Uh, same, same as FDR, but different. Uh, Truman is very conscious of the fact that he is not as smart as FDR or well-liked, and he doesn't have any of the military experience, which FDR's military experience is he worked in the Naval Department. But So Truman is coming to a room with Churchill, who he is not equipped to deal with because Churchill is cutthroat. Churchill is a politician. He's coming to the room with De Gaulle, who is cutthroat and is a politician and is also willing to tell you to your face when you're being an idiot. And then you've got Eisenhower, who is like, this is my commander in chief, so I'm going to have his back no matter what. And Eisenhower is the guy you want to have your back no matter what, because yeah. he's he's the big army guy. After the war, uh, de Gaulle and Eisenhower are actually close because de Gaulle comes to visit the U.S. Uh, in like, don't know if it's the 50s or the 60s. And he goes to Eisenhower's farm in Gettysburg and they tour the battlefield together. And Eisenhower is all like, Eisenhower is a military history nerd. He loves Gettysburg and he knows all about it. That's why he bought a farm there. And as he's getting ready to tell de Gaulle everything, de Gaulle already knows it and knows it better than Eisenhower. And it's kind of this great moment where the French general is walking Eisenhower through his own backyard, telling him, you know, how the battle unfolded. Oh my God. That must've in a way, really pissed off Eisenhower with his grand air trine being told by a grand fire trine, you know, what, uh, this is what's going on here. But, but all that fire is like, I know about some stuff. I don't know. That's interesting. I, I like that they, I guess, maintain that relationship of, yeah. Yeah. De Gaulle and Churchill never get along. De Gaulle and Stalin never get along. De Gaulle and Truman never get along. But he and Eisenhower are able to work together. But then the problem is rebuilding France, uh, the French colonial collapse. So he's kind of busy at home. Yeah. And you see the same thing in England. Churchill has to turn his attention to the fact that the Canadians and the New Zealanders and the Australians all now want independence because they fought two wars for the British, not being British and not really with a choice. Yeah. This is kind of the beginning of the end for the big imperial powers not named America and yeah. also the USSR, but we don't call it imperialism for some reason. Yeah. So you're kind of watching the whole world shifts after World War II. And I think that's why it's such an interesting thing to military history scholars and history scholars and sociology people and just people who are interested in good stories in general as it shifts the dynamic of the world as we know it. And you have all the big colonial empires are done. You have Japan and Germany are now major powers. France becomes a nuclear power and Russia, which had up to World War I bit of backwater and the US, which at before World War II was ranked like 16th in military power are now the two powerhouses of the world. Yeah. Going forward for the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. I'm looking up right now, the, the like natal chart, the birth chart of D-Day. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, Justin, because you said 
at the beginning that they had planned on storming on June 5th and then they pushed it to the 6th. Now, I know, I know that there's a full moon on the 6th. Did anyone consider that or was that just a coincidence? I'm they sure someone must have noticed it. did, and that's why they picked the 5th because they were afraid that the moons, they were taking everything into account. They were taking tides, they were taking temperatures, they were taking cloud cover, they were taking the moon into effect because a full moon affects the tides more than a partial moon. Right. For sure. Yeah. And so that is why the fifth was supposed to be the day, but it was a complete deluge and they they weren't going to risk it. So they did it on the sixth. Wow. And it ended up still not going how they wanted it to. Right. That's wild. So we're going to do the, the natal chart now of D-Day, yeah. actual D-Day, 6.30 a.m. You put it. I know. Yeah. yeah. We're going to see what six six forty four. 644. Let's see. Okay. Interesting. Oof. Okay. Well, that is so interesting. Yes, because it was a full moon. So obviously it's, that's exactly what's going on right now. We just had like, just this past week, we had the freaking eclipse with in the, in Sagittarius, like full moon. And it was a doozy, especially for us mutable signs out there. Um, I was like, I was an emotional mess. Um, but so D-Day was a Gemini sun, like Sagittarius moon, Gemini rising. So that's just complete opposition energy because fun fact. Um, so if, much air and fire. So much air and fire. And like these air and fire grand trines leading this situation where, you know, anytime, you know, uh, every, whatever season it is. So right now it's Gemini season. So the full moon will be in Sagittarius because it's the opposite. So, you know, if it was Leo, when it's, when it's Leo season and it's a full moon, the full moon's going to be in Aquarius because it's the opposite. So when there's opposition, opposition energy, it's like you, it's just, you can't have one without the other. You're always going to be fueling from the other one. So there's just a lot of back and forth energy and it's mutable energy and it's fire, air energy. And so of course there's movement. Of course there's I don't want to say like, I don't want to compare myself this way, like weapons though, but fire, like, you know, firearms, like there's like, and the air fueling the, the fire. air fueling the fire, like, <laughs> is like just an attack happening. And, and there's so much going on. I feel like there's so much like squaring energy. There's a lot of square energy it's going on in my mind. It's like, can, there's, there's Taurus and Virgo in there too, but like, Gemini, Sagittarius, Gemini, Leo, Leo, Gemini, Gemini, Libra, Leo, Aquarius, Aquarius Sag. Sagittarius. There's so much air, so and fire. much air and fire. And also like, just like the shape of it is there's a lot of squaring going on and squaring energy is like, we're it, it's in, it's friction that needs mm. to happen. It's like, it's stuck. Yeah. It's stuck and it's, but the energy's moving. So when it gets mm. to a point, it's like, so yeah, yeah. damn, damn very interesting yeah so that is like yeah the d-day chart very interesting and it would be it would be interesting to do some comparisons of like these major generals seeing like what you know what the progressions were going on on those mm -hmm. days but mm -hmm. interesting stuff and you asked about after the war just to show you how de gaulle and churchill are two different people when the british empire starts fracturing churchill's clinging on to a tooth and nail Meanwhile, de Gaulle is dealing with a civil war in Algeria and his solution is, all right, well, they want to be free. Let's let them. And the French people are like, 
what? And the Algerians are kind of not sure that he means it. Yeah. Because why would he? But his thing is, this is way too violent. We just fought, you know, a world war. We're still rebuilding France. It's like almost, it's not worth it. it it's not. Like the Algerians are not going to be happy by anything we do. The French people are not going to be happy because you have people getting attacked on the streets of Paris. Like this is not just a localized thing far away, yeah, which no, actually sure. isn't that far because it's in Africa. It's right there. Yeah. Yeah. So he ends up, you know, brokering a truce with Algeria that, you know, doesn't make everyone happy, but makes a whole lot of people less dead. So yeah <laughs> he's he's willing to sit down whereas churchill is always the type of person why wouldn't you want to be british it's the greatest thing ever and if you don't want to be british how long will it take me to starve that out of you what a leo moon huh? okay. <laughs> oh my gosh yeah oh that's interesting that's like i also find it interesting that charles de gaulle is like he's got that scorpio energy he has the libra rising but he's like his rising is opposite his moon so that's again that opposition energy he's a libra rising but with an aries moon so for a libra rising he's not going to be as libra because he can't use his libra energy without the aries energy because it's right across from each other so it's almost like you know he but then at the same time you see that with his aries energy where he's like people are surprised that he's going to stop the fighting, but he has that opposition of the Libra energy where it's like, you know, those two things work together. So that's it's cool how that, I guess, connects there. I don't even know how to do my hashtag Catmoon recap for, <laughs> for an episode like this, but I guess, um, how would you give a recap, Justin? <laughs> well, I think we should recap their signs. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. So starting with Charles de Gaulle, we have, he's a Scorpio, but only just. Um, Aries moon, Libra rising. We have Churchill, Sagittarius, Leo moon, Libra rising. We have FDR with Aquarius sun, Cancer moon, Virgo rising. Then we have Eisenhower, Libra sun, Libra moon, Virgo rising. It's also so interesting to me that we have two Virgo risings, two Libra risings as like main actors here. And I just, and heavy, heavy Libra placements, heavy um, cancer midheaven placements and all of these people. Well, okay. Not FDR. Um, but three of the four have grand trines in their chart. It's really wild. A little fun yeah. side note here that really doesn't matter much but in, in this episode, but I wanted to see, uh, cause Churchill sounded like he was a handful as a human. <laughs> and I wanted to see what his wife was and she was an Aries. And I think that only an Aries could handle him. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> they had it like, I mean, I don't know for sure, but didn't they have a pretty good relationship? They had a really good relationship. Yeah. And unlike FDR and De Gaulle, I'm not sure how close he was with his wife, but FDR was, you know, doing whatever he was going to do. But Churchill really, she was a partner to him. And she was the type of person who can handle someone with that kind of biting wit. Like Churchill is known for, you know, being really good with his words and being able to, you know, break you down pretty quickly. And Churchill obviously- is a Sagittarius sun with Sagittarius Mercury, right? Oh, no, sorry, Scorpio Mercury. So, yeah. Yeah. Actually, there's a fun scene in The Crown one of Churchill's last episodes that I actually looked into actually 
we're pretty sure happened where they commission a portrait of Churchill and it's a realist painter. So the church, the portrait is not flattering because at this point he's had a stroke. He's really old. He's not long for the world. And the picture kind of captures all of this and he wants nothing to do with his painting, but the queen is like, here you go. So he takes it and his wife burns. it. Yeah. Holy that's, shit. that's true. Uh, isn't that true? I believe, yeah, that I she... looked it up because I watched The Crown and I watched that episode and, and that was like, I was like, oh, I hope they didn't actually like get rid of it in real life. And they, they totally did. She, she yeah. burned it. Yeah. And Churchill's... what a fire duo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But Churchill's demise kind of coincides with the demise of England as the premier world power and the premier empire like as he falls apart and as he loses control, he starts to see, have to cede power to other people who are like, why are we doing this still? Like everyone else we've forced to give up their empires and you're still clinging to it. And then it becomes, well, which ones do we give up? Which ones do we keep? Because as we know, Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland are all still part of the United Kingdom. And if you go on Wikipedia and look up all 190 countries in the world, you can see how many of them still have the queen listed as their head of state. Mm. so obviously it didn't all fall apart yeah but isn't scotland leaving potentially there's talk of that there's talk of northern ireland rejoining ireland there's even talk of wales which you know it's only 20 to 25 percent talking that they might want to leave but that's a lot more than it was a decade ago i can't believe there's talk of northern ireland joining ireland holy and it has a lot to do with brex it's not as much to do with religion it's a lot to do with brexit for sure but even then like i I was about to launch into something that's off topic so i'm gonna (laughs) control it even though it's gemini season oh oh i was just gonna mention as far as like you know like when you talked about the like england being world power and everything and how like maybe like less so after that moment i will say that even though the united states has you know not made the best choices in life since or whatever we'll say but many french people they still just they consider the u.s as like literally their heroes and their rescuers and you have such like i i mean now that i'm back in the u.s i'm like jesus there are so many american flags everywhere like we're the only country with american flag like you can just turn in, a, in like a circle and you see like five million but um uh in normandy they've got you see american flags everywhere and they really do like you know have they hold the united states in such high regard and it's um it's definitely still seen as you know you guys liberated us especially in that area and i think that that's one reason why despite you know just life since that they still really hold the u.s in a high regard especially there i think the rest of known history is why they don't think the british have as much for what they did yeah because the French and the British have this really great history of hating each other almost as much as the French and the Germans do. It's so interesting. They really like, you know, what, like the British people call French people frogs and the, and the, um, the French people call British people roast beef, which I think is yep. really funny. But what? ask a british person where they're going to go on holiday and tell me half of them aren't going to france so (laughs) yeah oh exactly yeah yep 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 Yep. but i do think um i just that was a a fun fact to note and um and for anyone who is ever in france it is quite chilling 
uh, in the Normandy area to go to the American cemetery. And all of the headstones are facing the United States because the way they have it set up, you don't really, it's kind of, you're kind of like, why, like based on the way the whole thing is set up, you're wondering why you have to walk a certain way in order to read like the headstones. And it's because they're all facing the United States and it is heavy AF there. It is in a beautiful spot, but it is, ooh, it's heavy. It's really, really heavy. Yeah, well, believe the modern count is 10,000 plus casualties between the British and Americans and two and a half thousand at Omaha Beach alone. Yeah, That was the worst of the fighting, not to say any of them had it easy, but that one was where everything that could have got wrong did go wrong. Full moon. So. Then, oh my God. So wait, I'm sorry, but like how, how, how long was it? What was the span of time that those 10,000 people died there? Was it like a day? Was it a couple days? It was less than a day. Wow. It was like 18 hours, I think. Wow. Before the, they like finally the, got the Germans all off the beach. There's the Pont du Oc. I don't know if that's, but it's like the cliff that they scaled. And and that was like, there's literally just a massive cliff that like the people just scaled in order to, it's crazy. Yep. And I mean, you have all sorts of interesting characters who make their name at Normandy. Um, and like I mentioned, Teddy Roosevelt's uh, son, he actually, his beach actually went pretty well because they managed to get half the tanks ashore and the people coming ashore were able to hide behind the tanks and use them as cover. Whereas at Omaha, they didn't get the tanks ashore. No. So That's I could crazy. go on about famous people who did crazy stuff at Normandy all day. Uh, one yeah. of them with the last name Churchill, no relation. <laughs> well, as Save far as D-Day goes, yeah, we have a, the sun was in Gemini, the moon was in Sagittarius, there was a full moon, and it was Gemini rising, so there was chaotic, mutable energy, so much air and fire going on, and the leaders of the allies, let's say, were grand trines of fire and air, even so in their composite chart, so that is crazy astrological shit going on well thanks for telling us all of this really heavy and bloody information justin (laughs) as always (laughs) of course and i'm sure you'll have me back for something else we will anybody watching if this is the first one you've seen with justin go back we've done other ones we did did hamilton we did the president president mount rushmore Um, election election yeah yeah justin's a regular yeah (laughs) <laughs> gotta get you up on the website yeah. yes <laughs> soon enough well yes. thanks for doing this and um of course we uh we'll definitely have you back so um sounds like a plan what was the reason that you were telling us about uh d-day today i believe the stars made me do it 